Hello and welcome to episode 130 of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. I'm Adam. Today's case is older than usual, but it's one I recall personally very well, as it directly affected a friend of mine at the time, who was at school with one of the victims we'll hear about today. It's a brutal story of violence, vengeance, and one that will make anyone with teenage children not want to let them out of their sight ever again. A huge thank you again to friend of the show Chris Clark for helping with this story as he was involved in the actual real-time investigation. Catch him on Facebook at The Armchair Detective. If you haven't got your tickets yet for my appearance at the Pilot Light TV Festival in Manchester on Saturday 18th of May, when I'm debating the ethics of true crime shows, or my London show on the 20th of May about serial killers with top author Geoffrey Wansell, why ever not? It's still not too late, so please head to my website at uktruecrime.com to get them now. Whilst there, why not take a look at my recent detailed article about how I put this podcast together. Unless you want to talk football, because I really don't want to talk about it right now, please say hi at these events. And if you are a supporter on Patreon coming to either show, please message me so I can take you backstage. As always, I'm so grateful to all my supporters on Patreon, but especially this week's new supporters joining our exclusive club. That's James Sheridan, Georgina Thomas, Catherine Morris, Martha Emily and Russell Easton. Thank you all so much. I really, really appreciate your support. Before we begin, let's set some context by taking a look, for those of us who were born that is, at some of the music we were listening to, or not, in December 1986. Top-selling UK single this year was from the Communards with Don't Leave Me This Way, ahead of Diana Ross with Chain Reaction, and the ever-so-dreary I Want to Wake Up With You by Boris Gardner. The best-selling US song this year was, as Jake from the excellent Disgraceland podcast would say, a real dose of 80s cheese from Dionne Warwick and Friends with That's what friends are for. That was just ahead of the legend that is Lionel Richie with Say You, Say Me. And in the Australian album charts, Whitney was number one for 11 weeks with her album Whitney Houston, and this was the year's best-selling album. In the news this month, Platoon, directed by Oliver Stone and starring Charlie Sheen, Tom Berenger and William Defoe was released. And in the Ballon d'Or, Dynamo Kiev's Ukrainian forward Igor Belenov was named best football player in Europe, just ahead of Barcelona striker Gary Lineker and Real Madrid forward Emilio Petrogano. In the UK this month, David Penhaligon, a leading Liberal Party MP, died in a car crash near Truro in Cornwall at the age of just 42. Davina Thompson made medical history by having the first heart, lung and liver transplant at Patworth Hospital in Cambridge, and over 30 million people, the highest audience of all time for a British TV drama, watched a Christmas Day episode of EastEnders when Dirty Den served the divorce papers on his wife Angie. And in UK true crime news, 20-year-old roofer Russell Bishop was charged with the Babes in the Wood murders in Brighton that happened two months earlier, but he got away with it until his second trial in 2018. Today's story begins around the North London Hertfordshire border in Chesant, childhood home of people who have achieved great things. 
the incredible cyclist Laura Kenny, and the talented musician Cliff Richard. Oh yeah, and Victoria Beckham also grew up here. In 1986, pretty, blonde-haired 17-year-old Samantha Etheridge lived here with her family. She was popular, bright, and life was good. On Christmas Eve, Samantha went out with her boyfriend and her friends. Remember those Christmas Eves when you were in your teens? Great nights, and being too hungover to eat Christmas lunch the next day? Yup, me too. It was just a normal evening for Samantha and her pals, and at the end of the night, along with some of her friends, she jumped into a minicab. Spirits were high as they giggled about the evening, and talked excitedly about their plans for the holidays. One by one, they were dropped off, until just Sharon was left in the cab. And that was when the nightmare began. Peter Johann Chimlowski was born in 1956 in London. He was of German extraction and an ex-soldier. In 1986 he was aged 30 and he was a huge unit who took his bodybuilding seriously. He stood 6 foot 3 inches tall, weighed over 15 stone and had piercing blue eyes and fair, close-cropped hair. He knew the North London area well having lived there and also just over into Hertfordshire with a place in Hoddesdon. He was unmarried and had been a soldier for four years before being dishonourably discharged. He now tended to find sporadic work as a labourer. Let's cut to the chase here. Chimilowski was a deeply unpleasant man with a violent past. He had previous offences stretching back to 1980 for indecent assault in ABH, and was found guilty of rape in ABH the same year, and conspiracy to commit robbery in 1984. And then in 1985 he'd been accused of another rape, but this time was cleared at the trial. This experience had a significant effect on Chimilowski, who was held on remand for a very long 15 months. One prisoner who was in the slammer with him told how he was dubbed the Incredible Hulk and how nobody argued with him. But he said that he seemed to have a real hang-up about women, adding, I got the impression that he may have been jilted at some time, and it had really left its mark. He was highly sexed, and his wall was plastered with pictures of nude women, but he was obviously inadequate in that respect, and the only way he could hope to have a relationship with a woman was to dominate her. He was just a bully. Menacing Chimilowski looked upon himself as the body beautiful and bragged about how he'd won a string of bodybuilding events. The fellow inmate continued, He's a frightening monster of a man. He used to make me climb on his back and he would do 50 press-ups on the cell floor. The prison officers too were terrified of him. He was even allowed out of prison to take part in weightlifting competitions. This analysis was pretty close to the mark, and whilst on remand, Chimilowski brooded about being stuck in prison and his bitterness and hatred towards women grew to the extent that he vowed that on his release he would take revenge on all women that he met. And that revenge began with 19-year-old Catherine Anger. Chimanowski was to some people attractive and he could certainly be charming too. Catherine had met him playing badminton in London and she liked him a lot, he seemed a really nice guy so she was more than happy to arrange to meet him again to go on a date. At 30, he seemed very different from the guys in her social circle, and she was excited and a bit nervous on the 19th of December, 1986, 
as he drove to her house in Wood Green, North London, to take her on their first proper date. But all his charm evaporated, and he was like a totally different man to the one she'd met previously. She fell asleep in his car, and when she woke up, she was in a hotel, being raped. Very quickly, she realised that she wasn't free to go, and he had no plans to let her go home, despite her desperate pleas. Instead, Catherine was kept a prisoner and driven around various home counties and stayed in hotel rooms while she was kept naked and repeatedly raped on nine separate occasions, whilst being threatened with a knife and constantly terrified that he was going to kill her. Catherine was held captive for three long days until Monday the 22nd of December, when her abductor tried to get her to cash a cheque in a bank near Bournemouth in Dorset where she managed to take her chance to escape by tricking the man into letting her phone a brother who alerted the police. This was a huge risk for Catherine to take, as Chimilowski had made it absolutely clear that he would kill her if she made any efforts at all to escape from his grasps. Catherine was able to provide police with a detailed description of the man and the registration number of the vehicle he'd been driving. Detectives quickly traced the vehicle, a blue Talbot Solara, which had been hired for just one day from a firm in Barnet by a man called Peter Chimilowski. It was now just a matter of detectives finding him. But by the early hours of Christmas morning, Tuesday the 25th of December 1986, he still hadn't been apprehended, leaving him free to cruise the streets of North London in his blue saloon looking for his next victim. And it was here that fate meant he came across Samantha and her three friends. And after dropping the friends off at home, he abducted Samantha from the Ponders End area of London on the Hertfordshire border, just six miles from the previous abduction. When Samantha hadn't come home for Christmas, her family were desperately worried and contacted the police. Christmas Day was just the most terrible time as they desperately waited for some contact from her any contact, hoping for the best, but at the same time fearing the worst, and in front of them Samantha's Christmas presents lay unopened. And into Boxing Day the wait continued, with each minute dragging by, and the unthinkable realisation that they might never see Samantha again, now starting to feel like a real possibility. Then on Boxing Day was the call they'd been praying for, when Samantha quickly called to say that she was fine and she'll be home at 10.30 that evening. But their relation turned to despair as 10.30 came and went, with no sign of Samantha. Then the following day, Saturday the 27th of December, one of the family friends received a one-minute phone call from a clearly distressed Samantha to tell them that she was alright after being snatched by a mystery man posing as a minicab driver. The call was suddenly cut off by her captor, but she was just able to cry down the phone, there's a man with me and I'm being held by him. The hunt for the kidnapper was underway, and after that call from Samantha, extra police resources were drafted in to bolster the operation, as it moved from a missing person investigation to a kidnap. It was led by Detective Chief Superintendent Fergus Corcoran, who was working on the theory that the same man was involved in both incidents and a description of him and the vehicle were released to the national press, including the News of the World 
and the Maid on Sunday. And on Monday the 29th of December, it was splashed by the Sun newspaper, which carried the following headline and story with a photograph of the wanted man. Get Pete the Pole. Sammy Copps fierces hostage of giant muscle man. Police had discovered that the kidnapper went into the pub on Christmas Eve, asking for a woman called Cavendish or Kavanagh. But when she failed to appear, he agreed to give Samantha and her party lift instead. Samantha overheard him walking around looking for his customer, and she was then seen talking to him in the pub car park before she and three friends got in. Detectives suspected it was just a ruse, as the abductor knew that the pub would be packed at that time and someone would take advantage of an available minicab. And as we hear so often on this podcast, it was just purely chance that Samantha was taken. At St Mary's Church Chesant, where Samantha and her parents Carol and Gordon were regular attenders, parishioners began a round-the-clock prayer for her safe return. The Reverend Timothy Lloyd said that everyone is overcome with a sense of shock and her boyfriend, 17-year-old Paul White, who had been out with Samantha on the evening she disappeared, was too upset to talk. But his mum said, We're just hoping that Samantha's interest in psychology, which she is to study at university, will help her if she's being held by a maniac. The father of Catherine Anger said that he too was praying for Samantha. His message to her was, don't panic. He said we are all around giving Catherine the support she needs after what she went through. I can tell you now that she feared for her life. One piece of evidence from a witness persuaded detectives that Samantha was probably still alive. They found that Chimlowski had been seen at Epping Green in Essex with a girl believed to be Samantha at 10am on Boxing Day. It was there that she became within an inch of being rescued by a good Samaritan motorist. Her kidnapper asked the man for help after his car had become stuck in mud at the side of the road. And the man, being the good citizen he was, got a tow rope from the boot of his own car and helped drag the car out of the mud. A girl whom he later recognised from the press pictures as Samantha was standing by the car. He told police that she was quiet and said nothing to either him or the other man and she gave no signal that she was in any distress. After the car was freed, Samantha was driven off sitting in the back seat. Detectives thought that Samantha may have felt that she was under threat, which is why she did not say anything about her predicament. But while detective activity continued, Samantha was suffering the most unimaginable ordeal. Chimilowski was driving her around from locations from Epping Forest in Essex to other remote areas along the M11 corridor to Cambridge and then across the border to Norfolk. He chose Norfolk as he was familiar with the army bases there as a former soldier. The pair lived off crisps, chocolate and fizzy drinks and during this time she was repeatedly raped by Chimilowski. He drove around with a large knife embedded in the steering wheel and her bra dangled like a trophy from the rearview mirror. But Samantha was strong and resourceful, and once the initial shock of being abducted had passed, she figured that the best way to stand any chance of coming out of this ordeal alive was to befriend the volatile and often emotional Chimilowski. But even if he didn't carry out his threat to murder her, 
She was concerned that he kept talking about deliberately crashing the car and killing them both. Indeed, he'd ordered her to write his suicide note and her own farewell message to her parents, which she did through tears. And at 8.30am on Monday the 29th of December, this is exactly what he tried to do. They were driving along a straight piece of road in Norfolk, from Swaffham towards Brandon, when about two miles from Brandon, Chimilowski deliberately drove his car at another coming in the opposite direction. The noise was deafening as the two cars collided head-on, and then silence. Samantha came to and realised that she had survived the impact, but before she had time to react properly, Chimilowski made her climb out of the wreckage, and they ran off into Cockley Clay Woods. As they did so, they left behind a terrible scene of carnage. The innocent family, who happened to be travelling in the other direction, as Chimilowski made his bid for suicide, were Derek and Diane Smallbone, who were driving on their way to his parents' home in Kent for a New Year's party. Also in the car was Diane's five-year-old son and the couple's five-year-old baby daughter, Gemma, who was lying in a carry cot on a rear passenger seat. When rescuers arrived at the scene, they found Diane Smallbone cradling her baby, Gemma. In total shock, she kept saying softly, My baby, my baby. Someone gently took the five-month-old baby from her mother's arms and tried to revive her, but it was too late, and the poor little girl was pronounced dead at the scene. She was absolutely beautiful, said Derek's sister Brenda later. Everyone is absolutely shattered. Just two weeks ago, our village church was crowded for Gemma's christening. The pews were packed as Diane proudly held her daughter. Weeping with grief and anger, she added, I can't tell you what I would do if I met the driver who killed that beautiful baby. Back at the scene of the crash, the police had arrived and launched a hunt for the driver of the blue car involved in the collision, driven by Chimilowski. And meanwhile, suffering only from slight cuts and bruises from the collision, Chimilowski and Samantha had walked for over two miles through dense forests, with Chimilowski telling Samantha that he had indeed tried to kill them both. They eventually reached Cockley Clay Hall, where Chimilowski gave himself up to Sir Samuel Roberts, the owner of the ancestral home and a former Old Bailey barrister. Samuel immediately recognised them from televised photographs showing on the national news the previous evening. When he opened the door, Chimilowski, who had blood streaming from his forehead, said, I want to give myself up. Samuel made tea for them both and then contacted the police. And within six minutes, cars containing nine officers arrived. Chimilowski was handcuffed and taken into custody. Whilst waiting for police, Samuel made them both tea. How quintessentially British that seems, doesn't it? Samantha was also finally able to telephone her parents and tell them the good news. And as her dad answered the phone, she excitedly told him, It's me. It's all over. I am safe and I am coming home. Samantha's relieved mum speaking later after her daughter's call said, I'm sure it's because Sammy has a steel grit and she'd have talked him round, which is why she's still alive. She said she has never talked so much in her life to try to win him round. But she added that the family's joy at their daughter's return was tempered by the death of five-month-old Gemma Smallbone. 
She said that Samantha had told her that he had threatened Samantha's life, but she eventually talked him into throwing away the weapon by using psychology, which she aimed to study at university, adding, She obviously had some sort of relationship with this guy, and I think this virtually saved her, because in the end he could not bring himself to kill her. This man was even persuaded to wrap his coat around Samantha when she was cold, and Samantha described him as being as thick as two short planks. She had tried to escape just the once on Christmas night, but he ran and caught her, so she didn't try again. On Tuesday the 16th of June 1987, 30-year-old Peter Chimilowski faced court. Prosecutor James Townsend QC said, The events can only be summed up as an orgy of sex, a couple of kidnappings, and finally ending in the tragic death of a five-month-old baby. Michael Hubbard QC defending said, the morals of the farmyard lurked in Chimilowski's personality due to his ill-treatment at schools for maladjusted children. Wow, 30 years on, that phrase. Seems like something out of the Victorian era, doesn't it? Chimilowski admitted kidnap, rape and manslaughter charges at St Albans Crown Court. His plea to not guilty to murder on the grounds of diminished responsibility was accepted by the judge, who adjourned the case without fixing a date to allow him to hear medical evidence. He said this would help him decide between a prison sentence or an order to send the defendant to Broadmoor. On the following Sunday, the 21st of June, the Mail on Sunday published Samantha's exclusive story entitled My Ordeal. And Chimilowski, he was later sent indefinitely to Broadmoor, being deemed criminally insane. But the two teenagers kidnapped and sexually attacked by this monster still had to live with the horror of what he had done to them. Almost immediately afterwards, Catherine sought expert counselling and then chose to go to France as an au pair. Her mum said, she still suffers nightmares, but she is determined to pick up the pieces of her life. But of course, she could never forget the terrible experience, which will live in her mind forever. But Samantha, on the other hand, on the surface, was finding it, more difficult to cope and had deferred studying psychology for a year to give herself a bit more time to come to terms with her ordeal. Her mum said that although she seems okay, she was struggling to talk about what had happened, keeping things bottled up inside, adding, we hope that one day she will talk about it so she can begin to rebuild her life. Obviously she'll never fully get over this, how could she? And Chimilowski's dad said he hoped his son would rot in hell. The 62-year-old Ukrainian man who'd been living in North London since 1947 to provide a better life for his family said, We hope that Peter will bring fame to the family, but all he has done is bring shame and heartbreak. I never want to see him again. And that should have been that for Chimilowski. But in 2013 there was unexpected news reported by the Sun newspaper as follows. A victim of Britain's worst rapist broke down in tears last night when told he'd been released from Broadmoor. He was sent to secure Berkshire Hospital, Broadmoor, indefinitely, but the son was alerted by a woman who spotted him wandering around Northampton, where he is now thought to be in a care home. One of his victims, now 45, and living in North East England, sobbed. No one told me. I'm frightened, and I don't want him to find me. A Broadmoor spokesman said that when patients are discharged, they go to a medium-secure unit 
for further treatment. I'm afraid I haven't found out any more news about whether he is living free in the community or not at this time. Let's hope not. So what do you make of what we've heard today? As I record this on Monday the 6th of May 2019, Joseph McCann has just been arrested after a string of abductions which sound very similar to today's story. And I think we can all recall terrible cases over the last few years of predators posing as taxi drivers, giving them easy access to victims. I think that when I reflect on today's podcast, it has just once more emphasised the element of chance in keeping us all safe. Samantha just happened to be in the pub and needed a taxi when Chimalowski walked in. And as for poor Catherine, how could she ever suspect that a man she had partnered with playing badminton of all things would behave as he did? The amount of times you or I have clambered in a dodgy unlicensed taxi or have even hitchhiked home late at night and just got away with it, unscathed. And then Gemma Smallbone, whose life was cut short at just five months. She'll be in her early 30s now. Just luck, isn't it? Terribly, terribly bad luck. Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. And a huge thank you again to Chris Clark. Please catch him at the Armchair Detective. Please join me on Facebook to discuss this story or any other aspect of UK true crime. And to support the show and access almost 30 full-length episodes and other exclusive content in the true crime equivalent of Willy Wonka's factory. Mm, <laughs> sort of. Um, anyway, please head to patreon.com slash UK true crime. So that's all from me for today. The more I think about it, maybe I should pop into Rochdale on my way to Manchester next weekend. Any suggestions on how I could pass a couple of hours there? Hmm. On that bombshell, I'll catch you next week. And of course, in the meantime, stay classy.